0: Well, it's nice to be here. and um, The talk I'm going to give tonight is called The Seven Reasons Why It's Better Not to Hate Even If They're Really Greedy and Horrible and Corrupt and Mean and Terrible and Completely Deserve It. That's the long version. So, this talk, it may... um, it, it can be applied in several different ways. Um, um, a lot. I, when I f- first wrote this talk, it was sort of a response to the political climate. And when we look at poli- political figures, for instance, that we have strong feelings, aversive feelings towards, all of this can be applied. All of these seven reasons. Um, however, it, if you're, if that's not your thing, or you don't, anyway, it doesn't matter. If you're feeling, if you have a relationship that's difficult with someone, where you find yourself getting caught in um, some <coughs> suffering of creating enemies, this talk is also applicable. As was mentioned in my bio, and I've come here and talked about it, I, I'm very interested in the interface of Buddhism and social change, and so I'm constantly exploring what that means. And this, this, so part of this is a practice of how do we take what we do on the cushion off and bring it out into the world to confront the suffering that we meet, and how do we confront our own suffering in relation to what's going on? How do we how, how can we live from a place of peace and ease and still act for change when it's appropriate and do so with equanimity? These are all big questions. And I think one of the keys to working with this is understanding how not to get so caught up in hating the enemy. So for those of you who are involved in social action, you find as it, you'll see within these circles that it's really easy to... Um, demonize someone and to think that they're really bad and we're really good. We're right. We're good. They're bad. Whether it's, you know, as I said, a political figure or your neighbor who you're mad at or your partner who you're mad at today for whatever reason. Um, It's so easy to do that. And how, as Dharma practitioners, can we avoid getting caught up in that kind of thinking and feeling, how can we learn to open our heart to love more and to connect with connect with our compassion and our sense of goodness and our awareness of the other person's goodness? So just to distinguish uh, this word, ha- hatred. I'm using this word hatred because I don't like the word anger when we talk about. Um, In Buddhist circles, it's often talked about the three roots of suffering are greed, hatred, and delusion. And sometimes it's translated as craving, uh, hatred, and confusion, and then some variation on all of those. And I think the word anger in the Buddhist texts, which is usually dosa, D-O-S-A, is it actually has a wide variety of meanings. So when we say dosa, we can mean, we can mean anger, we can mean ill will, we can mean, um, rage, we can mean a whole set of, a set of meanings. And I actually think anger is something, and this is, this view may be somewhat controversial, but I actually believe that there's a lot of positive, positivity in anger. Not acting out out of anger. And not in um, in cultivating anger, but that anger, when the content, when the story of anger is removed, what you're left with is really just kind of an energy. So if you've ever had that experience where you're really mad at someone and then the story disappears and you're just left with that feeling of, oh, okay, I have power, I have something that's coming through me, that, um, that, you know, in the, in the Western religious traditions is sometimes called uh, righteous anger. So Martin Luther King often referred to it as righteous anger. And in Buddhist circles, the tendency is the second there's anger, okay, it's bad, breathe, take a few breaths and get rid of the anger and come back to, you know, to some kind of sense of peace and ease. So I don't want to discount anger. What I do want to do is focus more on the sort of the ill will, the venom, the the real dislike and what I'm calling hatred. But I'll probably in this talk go back and forth and say anger at times and confuse them. So what would happen if we lived a life where our... Our actions were not guided by hate, where we lived a life that came from love. Thich Nhat Hanh in the uh, 60s started the School for Youth for Social Service, which was this incredible training ground for, for students during the war, where these, these young people would come to his monasteries and they would train, they would do meditation practice, they would do sitting, walking meditation, study of the Dharma. And then they would go out into the communities and they would um, work with the people who had been bombed, they'd they'd rebuild homes, they'd take in orphans, they'd do medical treatment. So they were doing this beautiful engaged Buddhism practice. And the motto of it was, "Could could the students learn to die without hatred? That was what he was trying to teach them and as a realization, as a realization of their dharma practice. So when we can come, when we're in a, we're a situation where the hatred can dissipate, what's left is a lot more clarity. Hatred tends to cloud the mind. It confuses us. You know, we get, we get caught up in our views and our opinions and our us and them and right and wrong and we can't see clearly. So a mind that is free from hatred is a mind that has more clarity and more ease and more vision. And it may have some power, that power that I was alluding to earlier. It can still be there. There can be that sense of, oh, there's passion and I need to change something in the world. But I don't need to do it out of, because they're wrong and I'm right, they're bad, I'm good. I can do it from a different place. And that's the promise of the Dharma. It's not about not sticking up for yourself. It's not about disempowerment. It's not about becoming a wuss. You know. It's about being very clear and clean and awake and seeing the situation so clearly and acting from that clarity and compassion. You may disagree with me, by the way. So this is a quote from Dom DeLillo, the author. That he says, It's not enough to love the enemy, but to see how the two of you bring each other to deep completion. <laughs> Scary thought, right? Right? <laughs> Huh. And this is from Joanna Macy. It's not a battle between the good guys and the bad guys. The line between the good and evil runs through the landscape of every human heart. So we start to see that it's a little more complex than they're wrong and I'm right. It's, it's, it's within us, and we'll, I'll, I'll get to this in a minute. So, the seven reasons why it's better not to hate, and um, of course there are many more than this, but these are seven for now. The first is that hatred hurts. The actual act of hating in our minds is painful. And so the Buddha often talked about it as being a hot coal that you've picked up and you've grabbed in your hand. When your mind is filled with that kind of aversion, it's like you're burning up. Your hand is burning up. So hatred hurts. It's a feeling of disconnection, of separation, as opposed to when we feel connected to someone, when we feel loving. There's much more sense of ease, of connection, of, um, it can be quite, it can be happy. Now, the problem is that when we're feeling angry um, or hating someone or thinking, we're usually thinking we're right, and that gets confusing because that feels good, sort of. Okay, You know that feeling when you, you're, you just know you're right and that person is really, really wrong? You know that feeling? Just reflect if you've ever had that <laughs> for a moment. It feels good, but it actually, I've investigated this quite a bit because I like to think that I'm right a lot it actually feels only really good in the moment and it's it's kind of a sour bitter sweet feeling like it feels good but it actually it feels separating it doesn't feel connecting and so really the question with all of this oops, sorry the question with all of this is what kind of mind do you want to have what do you want what do you want to be in your what do you want your mind and your heart to be like you, it can be whatever you choose. And whatever you practice, you're going to develop. So, personally, not that I don't enjoy feeling right. You know that, you know that little expression, would you rather be right or would you rather be free? You heard that. It's a great one when you're in an argument with your partner. <laughs> Alright, would you rather be right? I really want to be right. Okay. No. How do, you want, how do I want my mind to be? That's often what I ask myself. So that's the first one, hatred hurts. The second one is that no one is eternally anything, ever. Or no one is inherently anything. You, we, we change on a dime. Our opinions about people change all the time. So when you look at a person and you think, I'm so angry at that politician, or I'm so angry at that friend of mine, or whatever it is, it could have been that you had a completely different opinion of them before, at another time. A friend of mine, um, a friend of mine one day, he got this phone call, he picked up the phone and it was, this person said, hi, may I speak with Jeff? And he was just in this very playful and kind of silly mood and he thought, um, and he, he, his name was Jeff, and he said, uh, I'm sorry, Jeff's not home. And the person said, are you sure? And he said, of course, oh, no, no, let me check, let me check. Where is he? Uh, Jeff, are you there? Are you there? And he just started having this ball, playing with this woman and laughing and joking, and she knew he was playing, and they were—they became best friends. She was a complete stranger, and in that moment, they became very good friends, in a sense. And I finally, finally, he said, all right, I'll admit it. I'm Jeff, so why are you calling? And she... she <laughs> And she said, I'm a collection agent. <laughs> and that was it. Enemy. <laughs> Immediately. But see, it was the same person. It was the same thing. It's just so interesting the way, if we can remind ourselves in the midst of hatred or ang- like rage about someone, that they're not always evil. I mean, the famous story of Angulimala that most of you know, You know, Angulimala was this evil criminal who was murdering people, and he had killed 999 people. And the Buddha sort of looked with his omniscience and saw that he was about to kill the thousandth one, which was what he was supposed to do. And it was going to be his mother, which in Buddhist cosmology is the worst possible thing you can do. Never kill your mother. And (laughs) he... (laughs) So he wore this garland of fingers around his neck. That's his name, Angulimali. For every single person he killed, he got a finger. And he was about to do the last one. The Buddha stopped him, converted... You know, you're familiar with this story, yeah. So anyway, he converted him and he became this enlightened being right on the spot. He just, boom. You know, the language, I think, of the text is you is... um. He was. The Buddha was running ahead, and Angulimala couldn't catch up with him, and said, "And say, why haven't you stopped?" And the Buddha said, "I have stopped. Now, how about you?" And then Angulimala, boom, got enlightened. That was it. And he still got. Apparently, he had a lot of karmic repercussions that people would stone him right when he would go into villages because they were so angry at him. But he was enlightened, and. Things were good. Anyway, people people can change. People can change. That was my point. One more story. One more story along those lines. I was um, I was at a protest for the Nevada desert at the Nevada desert test site, and um, we were we were in this. The situation where we were doing a Buddhist protest, protesting the facility that was continuing to do research on nuclear weapons, and we were there, there was a line that you weren't allowed to cross. If you crossed the line, you could get arrested, which was essentially the protest that most people do. So we were sitting in front of the line, and um, we were meditating, and we were sort of doing this whole Buddhist thing, and. Um, And the the policemen at the time were very happy to have us there, but they said, would you mind not crossing the line? We really don't feel like arresting people today because it's just, you know, it's kind of been a slow day. We'd like to keep it that way. Well, one of our our members went across the line and then the policeman got really angry and he kind of got mad at us and we were in this whole thing. Oh, the police are so evil. They don't understand and we're just trying to show that we hate nuclear weapons and that's bad. So anyway, we were really mad and... um, the protest ended. We went, up, we went up back to the cars. I got to the car and realized that my friend had locked the keys in the car. So we had to go crawling back. "Excuse me, could you help us, please?" And suddenly, the evil police who were ruining our protest and so forth, they became our saviors. So anyway, you get the point. You never know. you never know. So that's number two. Number three, we're that way too. Whatever we're angry about, whatever we we think a person is wrong and evil, it's in our hearts and minds. I just heard Jimmy Carter on the radio today. Did anyone hear that interview? Well it was you know, his his new book has come out. But just the memory of him making that comment many years ago, I've lust in my heart, and how horrifying that was to the country and how as Buddhists, you know, as meditators, that's of course. I mean, how many times has lust arisen and passed? How many times has anger, murderous rage come and go into our very hearts and mind? It's just the way things are. So, the point here is that we have a we have the capacity for anything, really. And certain examples in history have shown us, for instance, in Rwanda in the 1990s, where these were these were neighbors and friends, and the conditions became so severe that it turned them against each other, and they became each other's murderers and rapists. And I have this quote from. Um, The Human Rights Watch woman who said, The behavior lies just under the surface of any of us. The simplified accounts of genocide allow distance between us and the perpetrators of genocide. They're so evil, we couldn't ever see ourselves doing the same thing. But if you consider the terrible pressure under which people were operating, then you automatically reassert their humanity, and that becomes alarming. You're forced to look at the situation and say, what would I have done? Sometimes the answer is not so encouraging. It's, it's scary to think that. And most of you are familiar probably with the Milgram experiments that were done in the 60s, right? Where they, were, they had some people who were the subjects um, who, who had to press a button to administer electric shock, and then actors who were screaming and getting more, and these people, because they were told to do it, they just kept pressing the button. And these were p- free-loving hippies, right? These were, these were people who you would um, never imagine would have a kind of violent tendency, but they did it. So, so anyway, I'm bringing all of this up just to remind us that it's within us. So when we're in the midst of anger, how can we find compassion? How can that be accessed when we realize, oh, it's within us too? Thomas Merton says this, Instead of hating people you think are war makers, hate the appetites and disorders in your own soul, which are the causes of war. If you love peace, then hate injustice. Hate tyranny, hate greed, but hate these things in yourself, not in another." Interesting quote. So the fourth reason is, we don't know for sure who's right. This is a hard one to stomach, because when we're mad at someone, as I said earlier, we really feel like we're right. And we know from our dharma practice the importance of being able to be with not knowing, to sit with the discomfort of really not knowing, not holding to fixed views. And we know that if we hold to fixed views, then we suffer. Even if we're right, we suffer. So... If you look back over all the views you've held, how many times have you held views that at a certain point in your life you were completely convinced they were true, only to find out years later you were wrong? I know at so many of the friends I used to work with um, in, the, in sort of the engaged Buddhist circles for years were involved with militant, violent movements, and now they're pacifist, peace-loving Buddhists. And, you know, who was right? When were they right? Was there ever a right? It's just we shift and we change. So sometimes that helps me a lot to be a little bit less judgmental, to have a little bit more of a flexible, relaxed mind in relation to saying, oh, there's the other and they're, they're bad. Number five is, you can't fight karma. <laughs> so, this one is the one where, you know, you have to a little bit connect with the Buddhist cosmology, but you could just say, okay, we know that something that that's negative is going to have negative results, in certainly in this life, possibly the next, whether you believe that or not. So... A person who's doing something that is harmful to other people, for instance, and you're reacting too negatively, you can just remember there's karma. I don't have to be the one responsible for proving that they're wrong or being, you know, being right about this. And the model for this, of course, is the Dalai Lama. You know, His incredible, incredible, com- incredible compassion towards the Chinese. And what he says is he's really concerned about their karma. It's not about, it's, he, like it's the compassion. It opens his heart when he thinks, wow, they are acting in ways that are harming the Tibetan people and the results for them are going to be suffering. And his heart opens up. So I take that as a model of a way to remind us not to hate, not to judge in that way. Number six, through understanding will come compassion. This is a quote from Barack Obama. I often say we've got a budget deficit, that's important. We've got a trade deficit, that's critical. But what I worry about the most is our empathy deficit. That's a great quote, especially from him, you know. One of the things I learned really, really early on in my practice, it was one of the very first retreats I ever sat, a teacher of mine said, when I can't be compassionate, I ask myself, what is it I don't understand? You know, what is it I don't understand? Because this understanding is so much the doorway into compassion. So sometimes, I mean, I'll, I'll try this practice quite frequently. You know, I'm angry at someone. Okay, just take a moment, take a breath, and see, what don't I understand? Oh, there's a whole set of causes and conditions that led to them being the way they are. Or they really believe they're right, and they're suffering. Uh, that You know, there's so many ways of invoking compassion. Letting compassion in. You know, when we can't feel compassion, I love those of you who are familiar with the Tonglen practice of giving and receiving. When someone is feeling pain, to instead of rejecting them or being shut down, to actually imagine taking it in. Not in a way that can hurt you, but just in a way just breathing in the suffering and transforming it internally and breathing out alleviation of the suffering which is the compassion it's an incredible practice an incredible practice when you're working with the so-called enemy you can do that as a practice, you can just stop and say, see if I can imagine the whole web of conditions that led to why this person is acting the way they are and sometimes it relaxes and sometimes it's just understanding. It, you, know, you know how compassion can come in an instant when we understand? So another story, they're kind of like the earlier stories, but I was driving along in Berkeley and there was this. there's a road where um, it gets pretty congested. And I was in a rush. And I was trying to get sort of down a couple of blocks and there was a person, there were three lanes. There was a the turning lane and then the two, two other lanes. And there was a person in the middle lane trying to turn left And I was late, and it was causing this huge traffic jam, and everybody was honking, and I'm like, oh, this is so annoying, I have to get through, and I just hated this person. And so finally, finally, I inched my way up, I got up, I got right there, I looked into the car. And it was my friend, Sue. <laughs> and I just went, oh. <laughs> And so all this rage and demonizing and othering and so forth, it all disappeared in that moment. I just thought it was hilarious. I started laughing and waving. Get over there. Go, go. What are you doing? So it, so it was this moment of compassion. Because I could love her because she was my good friend. But I couldn't love this faceless, bad driver who was ruining my day and making me slow. This is the practice of compassion. The final one is just a little famous Buddhist quote. Hatred will never cease with hatred. Only through love will hatred cease. This is the eternal law. So whatever we practice will develop. Gil uses this. I love, he loves to talk about the water bucket, right? You drop a little bit of water into a bucket and you look down one day and it's filled with a lot of water. What we practice grows and grows and grows. So what do we want to practice? It's about linking the means with the ends so that it's not just, we, we... well, I think it's best said by Thich Han when he simply talks about being peace. Who do you want to be? Do you want to be a person filled with hatred and rage and I'm right and self-righteousness and judgment? Or do you want to be a person filled with love and compassion and kindness? A.J. Musty, Musty, the great peace activist, said, There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. That's such a great quote. So who do we want to be? You know, Martin Luther King talked about it as a hatred and violence as a descending spiral into more and more violence that the only way out is love. It's the only way. So just a reminder that this is not about disempowering you. It's not about not acting for your own um when you see, When you feel passionately about something it 's not about not responding I mean I think most of you remember the story of Sharon Salzberg when she was getting kind of i can 't remember she was in a in a rickshaw in india and and there were all these people who were really trying to to touch her and grab her and this one guy got really kind of came forward and grabbed her and she was really scared but she was trying to be this peaceful, easy Buddhist who had so much equanimity and when she told her teacher about being harassed her teacher said with all the love in your heart you should have taken your umbrella and hit him over the head (laughs) so this isn't about (laughs) you get the picture we're just trying to work with our minds trying to work with our hearts so if we're not going to do it through hatred, we've got to go do it through love, and we can. So I'll just read this last one. I can't remember if I read this here before, but this is this is from Bill Clinton. Have you ever read a quote from Bill Quint- Clinton here? <laughs> Has anyone ever read a quote from Bill Clinton here? All right. Um, this is when he went to meet with Nelson Mandela. And they went, he did this whole tour with Mandela in uh, 1988, and it was after um, Mandela had been released. And, they went, into, and they, saw, they went into the prison cell, and there's actually a picture here of him and Mandela in the prison cell where Mandela was for 27 years. So he says, We had one especially meaningful conversation. I said, Madiba, Mandela's colloquial tribal name, which he asked me to use. I know you did a great thing in inviting your jailers to your inauguration, but didn't you really hate those who imprisoned you? He replied, of course I did, for many years. They took the best years of my life. They abused me physically and mentally. I didn't get to see my children grow up. I hated them. Then one day, when I was working in the quarry, hammering rocks, I realized that they had already taken everything from me except my mind and my heart those they couldn't take without my permission. I decided not to give them away. And he looked at me, smiled, and said, And neither should you. After I caught my breath, I asked him another question. When you were walking out of prison for the last time, didn't you feel the hatred rise up in you again? Yes, he said. For a moment I did. Then I thought to myself, They've had me for 27 years. If I keep hating them, they'll still have me. I wanted to be free, and so I let it go. He smiled again. This time he didn't have to say, and so should you. (laughs) So that went a little bit longer than I expected, but um, we have some time for any comments to end.
1: Um, let's say you know someone um, who's taking advantage of even the take it, you know advantage of your kindness in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, you know it's one thing not to hate them, but should you you know be open you know still like if they were a friend to hanging out with them or you know like you know what I mean like where do you draw the line between having compassion for someone but then same way you know I, I don't hate them, but maybe I shouldn't be around them, you know what I mean? Yeah.
0: And that's really wise discrimination, because you don't want to be taken advantage of by someone. And if you're in a relationship that's been harmful to you in the past, you sometimes need to make a decision not to stay in that relationship. But if you can work it through, that's a whole other thing, you know, then it seems to be workable. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. All of these questions, yeah. it's tricky how to figure out how to do it and how to have forgiveness and how to have compassion and how not to continue. Um, you know, sometimes people call it idiot compassion, right? Because it's like, it's stupid. You shouldn't, you don't need to do it in that way. You can do it in a, um, in a much more aware way, a wise way. Yeah. Someone else in the back had a question.
1: I I was very intrigued uh, by your comment that her teacher told her to uh, feel compassion and and take her umbrella and hit him over the head. And I I guess I want to know more what you mean. I'm kind of afraid to ask in a way because the the image is so intriguing that it feels like I could have a lot
0: of fun thinking about it and thinking about it and (laughs) thinking about it. What does it mean? So anyway, I guess I wanted more. I just think that it's sort of the same question about not being taken advantage of and not letting yourself be abused, which was happening in that situation. By the way, I think that story is in her book, Loving Kindness, so you can read it yourself and um, see what she has to say. But its I still think, I mean, I love the image of Manjushri you know, this warrior, this warrior image, this deity who has the sword of wisdom, right? And he'll just cut through with the sword of wisdom. And it's not this, sometimes when we think about compassion as an archetype, we think of sort of lovey dovey, sweet, you know, there's Avalokiteshvara with a hundred, a thousand arms and hands. And, but actually, Manjushri is this archetype of compassion that's really, uh, it's paired with wisdom. And so, manjushri is just going to, like, we can be strong and wise, and we can take our umbrellas, but we have to, I mean, this is the hard thing for most of us, can we really do it with that kind of love inside? I don't know. I mean, it usually seems kind of hard, so probably maybe the better thing at that point to do is just to sort of walk away from the situation. I don't know. Think about it. Thoughts? Questions? Comments? Nothing? It's fine. (laughs)
1: Yes talk more Talk a little bit more about socially engaged Buddhism as a movement mm-hmm. and what is um, and how it is here in the Bay Area.
0: Well, I'll just be brief because I could do a lot. Um. <laughs> in fact, I think I did a talk review months ago, but um, engaged Buddhism is the intersection of Buddhist practice and social change work, and it's, it's, world, I mean, it's worldwide. There's tremendously amazing examples of it all around Asia. Um, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh is an example of it, and the Dalai Lama is an example, and um, the, the movement in uh, Sri Lanka, Sarvodia where the first Buddhist-based development project, which was started 50 years ago, Which now has development um, has programs in in 10,000 villages across Sri Lanka and is working with the ceasefire that's um, that's happening. This is like these are these beautiful examples of engaged Buddhism. Here in the states, it's it's there's a wide variety. I tend not to call it a movement because I don't think it's that organized, but it's. It's more individuals and institutions and organizations and communities that are all bringing this practice of engagement, of social engagement, and merging it with the Dharma practice, so that what we see is, you know, you'll see things like the Zen Hospice Project or what the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, which I was involved with for many years, bringing meditation into prisons and jails and bringing international human rights work It's in Buddhist countries and... um, uh, there's, just, there's sanghas that are engaged. For instance, the Berkeley Zen Center has been working at a homeless shelter for the last 10, 15 years. So there's a huge variety of possibilities for engaged Buddhism. And the, um, the, I think the most important piece for me is that, that it really brings together the internal and the external that what we do on the cushion has a profound effect on what goes on out there, and that many of us feel really naturally drawn to, say, okay, I'm working on myself, and I want to go out, and I want to serve, and that it's a liberation practice, I see it as, that it's actually freedom in the same way that we can sit and watch our minds and be aware. We can do it out in the world, and that there isn't that separation. So... um, Anyway, those are a few words about engaged Buddhism. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Um, over. We end at nine, right? Yeah. Okay. So we have time for a <laughs> <yeah. laughs> Thank you. It
1: okay, So um. I know what you're saying, you have to have compassion for people and stuff. And um, what if you know the person, or like the, not person, but like a group of people are doing something wrong? Like, um, I've been researching a lot about animal cruelty.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that's wrong. I mean, (laughs) it's just, it's disgusting. And they, like, these corporations don't want to change. Would Mm -hmm. you have compassion for them? Mm
0: -hmm. It's a really, it's a huge question. You know, I mean, within the Buddhist world, there's really this sense of trying to not be so attached to our views and to have this more sense of ambiguity and we don't know and they don't know. And I remember I was reading this book and there was this question of um, uh, the author of the book. It's a wonderful book. I know I forgot the name. Anyway, it's about the doctor in Haiti who's working in Haiti. Has anyone read that? Mountains? Mountains Beyond Mountains. So anyway, he's working with the poor in Haiti, and he has this thing called um, AMC's, which he calls areas of moral clarity. Okay, so if a person is hungry, they need to be fed. If a person is torturing an animal, that seems like an area of moral clarity where we, we and so. I think that again, it comes back to this warrior response that when you see something that you know to be hurtful, that you can act to change it. But see if you can do it from a place of a lot of groundedness and centeredness, and not about, you know, you're the most horrible person on earth and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do something really bad to you, but just like standing in your power and saying, this is wrong, and I know it and I see it clearly. It's a really different way of operating. Thanks for your question.
1: I just want to thank you very much for coming. And a little update, um, there was, was the Buddhist Peace Fellowship that was active here at IMC, and it's kind of trying to get reformed again. And um, so anyone who's interested, there's a binder over here at the end where you can sign up your email for getting onto the list. And Maya Doer is speaking tomorrow night at the Buddhist Alliance for Social Engagement home up in San Francisco. So we're going to have a little carpool going up there. If, you, if anybody be interested, they'd like to speak to me afterwards. And I really appreciate your talk, especially that very last thing. Because what haunts me is the war in Iraq. And... I sometimes sit here in the middle of everybody, and I just wonder, you know, with all of the strength that we have, if we could just, you know, focus it on Congressman Lantos, like get him to start voting against the war, which he hasn't ever done. Mm. So um, I just am grateful for you to
0: touch us. Thank you. um, While you're advertising the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, there's a a big um, benefit for Buddhist Peace Fellowship with Robert Thurman coming up and um, it's called Wisdom and Compassion for Social Change Being Peace in a Time of War and it's Sunday March 5th up in San Francisco so I'll leave this poster out there if you're interested I only have one but if you've never heard Bob Thurman go he's so great and amazing to listen to and very funny and brilliant oh you have that you have the poster there oh you have leaf. Great. All right. So let's um, let's end with a meditation, just a minute or so. Sure. So notice what's happening for you right now, what you're feeling. And notice if there are any areas in your life where you might begin to apply some principles of non-hating. And notice if there's a part of you that feels drawn to acting on something in behalf of what you believe in. See if you can feel that inside your body, that energy. So I'll dedicate the merit of our evening together to the benefit of all beings. May all beings be free from suffering, from enmity. May we learn to live together in in insanity in this planet. May we protect this planet that is so deeply in need of our love and protection. May all beings, may we, may we walk together in joy and happiness and we awaken to our true nature.